So here we are, the story of Joseph. This is the story that takes us to the end of the book of Genesis. This spans from 37 all the way to the end of the, of the book, so 14 chapters. So we better start reading. Uh, Tamar, no, I don't need that part, no. Um, I'm only kidding, but... Yeah, to summarize a story like this in one week is, has been a very difficult thing to think about this week because it is a remarkable story. But I want, I, want to, I want to look at different elements in it, go through the whole story, and just see, see what we can see. Uh, for those who, who may not know, we are reading through the Scriptures together as a church body using a resource called The Story. The books are on the table over there. But it is an abridged NIV Bible that is arranged chronologically in, in, in order of how the events actually happened. Um, and it is with connecting italicized words from the author, from the theologian who put this together, that helps you connect the different sections of the Bible together so you can really see what is the Bible, what's the big message of the Bible. We can't sit down and read the Bible in one sitting. But every once in a while, we need to have a really big picture view of the Bible. Um, for most of us, it's, it takes about one or two years to read through the Bible if you're going to read through it daily. Uh, but in this, we're going to be, in 31 weeks, we're going to have gone through the whole storyline of the Bible. And I think what you're going to find is once we get to the, to the end, you're going to, be, you're going to be like I was when I first did this uh, in the summertime when I was on sabbatical. You're going to be so inspired by seeing the big picture that you're going to want to turn back to Genesis and take a look at it, or t- turn back to Micah and take a look at it, and just say, wow, what, what else is in here? This is so cool. So I'm really, I'm really excited about this tool. Uh, looking deeply at God's story allows us to see our story, and this is, meant, and this is not fiction, this is nonfiction, God's nonfiction story, historical account in the Bible, and our nonfiction, I hope, lives are connected. Now, we, this, being immersed in the Word of God, the written Word of God preserved for us, and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives allows us to put both feet into the story that God is continuing to tell that started back in the beginning. So I'm really excited about this study. It's, it's really rich. And one of the most simple things, concepts, that the author, Randy Frizee, uh, came up with is this concept of there always being an upper story and a lower story. This is just a way to conceptualize how God works in the world. Think of it like two halves of a zipper. So the upper story is, is the first half of the zipper. The lower story is the bottom half of the zipper. And then the zipper goes through and pulls them together. Um, what this concept is teaching us uh, is that the lives of the people recorded in the history of the Bible, as well as our lives, we only see one part of what is happening at any given time. Uh, we see the lower story, the, what, just what happens in our lives. Things like... Uh, going grocery shopping or getting married or having kids or, or uh, going through tragedies like losing a loved one. Uh, these are all parts of our story. Some of them we, we're excited about and we celebrate. Other, other, others of them shake us to our very core and leave us um, bewildered. So if we focus on our lower story, and even the lower story of the world that we're living in, you know, the, the world is constantly telling us stories too and interpreting, interpreting the world for us and telling us what's going on. And, uh, you know, we can get lost in this. The upper story is what God is doing through the events of the lower story. And this is a, uh, this is a posture of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because the person that comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek after him. 
the up, looking at the upper story is, is a, a statement of faith. It's saying, I see my, lo- my story, my, my lower story, my ups and downs, my own personal failings and sins, tragedy and triumph, victory and defeat. But that's not all there is. God is also continuing to tell a nonfiction story right on into our day, into our lives, uh, using us. And God is, is, such a, is a really interesting storyteller because he is, being God, he's completely focused on the macro picture, the big picture of, of world events, and the micro picture of our individual lives. He's equally focused on those two things. Because he's love, because he's God. And he works, it says in Romans 8, 28, he works through all things, he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So as a Christian, when you look at your lower story, you can look at things that God allows to happen in your life or tragedies that happen that seem so senseless. And you might not understand it. You might be angry and you might be, you might have a really hard time with it. But you can say with confidence, God is going to use this for my good because I love him. I'm called by him. He's going to use this. It's not baptizing hard things in our lives and saying, you know, now this is, I, I can't be sad about this anymore. It's simply a posture of faith. And sometimes it doesn't come easy. But when those two halves of the story come together, God's, the upper story that God is telling and our lower story, it's it zipped together. Uh, it's quite an amazing thing. In fact, I think that when we are in heaven, it says, uh, now we know in part, then we shall know in full. Now we see but in a, as like a, like a dark mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Uh, now we know in part, then we will be fully known. You know? So this is the idea. Someday we're going to see this two-sided zipper, and we are going to be astonished at what God has done. He, and uh, what the writer of Ephesians says or, is that uh, he's summing up everything in the earth through Christ. So it's like a giant math equation that's gone terribly wrong, and then God is going to take all of that, and he's going to sum it all up in Christ, and it's all going to equal God's kingdom fully realized. This is a faith stance that Christians take. We have our lower story. We have our upper story. Uh, this is our, this is a perfect, perfect narrative uh, to look at this concept of higher story and lower story and see how God works uh, through this. So I'm really looking forward to, to getting into Joseph today. The whole point of this entire venture is that we would learn to be the people, what does it mean to, to be the people of God in our day and in our way? Um, rooted in Scripture, empowered by the Spirit, and moving forward in time to, some, to things that have not happened yet. To be the people of God. Here's the key takeaway I get when I look at Joseph's life, which I think we're going to see this morning as we, as we look through this story. Joseph really believed, really believed that God was in charge. He really did. He's one of few, of, of few people that really seems to have seen this uh, in, in some of these stories we read in this big dysfunctional family. Joseph really believed that God was in charge and that God was faithful to keep his promises no matter what. Just like Abraham, who didn't withhold his only son from God, but believed that God would keep his covenant no matter what happened, so Joseph seems to have inherited this faith. Uh, Joseph had a vision of God's upper story, that God is at work in a big picture way, as well as in his own life. And he, he didn't always know what that story was. I think he spent years not knowing what the story was, but he believed that God was working out his purposes through the events of his own life and what he went through. 
both good and bad things. So this belief allowed Joseph to get through some very, just very practically speaking, to get through some really hard times. He said, you know, God has a plan, God has a plan. But not only was it a psychologically comforting and emotionally comforting concept, God did have a plan. He was right. And God has a plan now. Furthermore, Joseph's life is going, we're going to see, it's going to foreshadow the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to bless all the people of the world. Bringing ultimate salvation through a descendant of Joseph that would come later, Jesus Christ. That's a remarkable story. Joseph was the son of a man named Jacob who God renamed Israel. We talked about last week. One of 12 children of Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel, just 12 sons of Jacob. Joseph was the first child born to Jacob's wife, Rachel, who was the wife that he really liked the most. <laughs> um, monogamy is taught, you know, being married to one person. It's taught in the New Testament, and, all, and it's, it's, it's recommended, but people, God was gracious to people that married lots of people back then. I don't recommend it. Although sometimes it has its appeal, and not, not what you're thinking. Um, I, I think that I think that, that, you know, if you're, instead of your wife fighting with you, they fought with the other wife. That's what, happens in, that's what happens in the Bible all the time. Instead of fighting with you, they're fighting over and trading stuff to see who gets to hang out with you. It's, it's just bizarre. Messed up stuff. Anyway, polygamy. Where was I? Joseph was the son of Israel. One of the 12 children. The first child born to Rachel, the the beloved wife of Jacob, Jacob's favorite wife, and Joseph was his favorite son. So you could say Joseph was the favorite of the favorite in the family. The favorite of the favorite. Joseph came from a line of people who God had promised to bless and make into a great nation. His father Jacob uh, had Isaac as his father, and Isaac had as his father Abraham, the first father of the nation and the keeper of the covenant which was then ratified and re-given to every subsequent generation. God told Abraham in Genesis 12, 2, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The story begins when Joseph was only 17 years old in Genesis 37. His father, Jacob, ha having favored uh, Joseph, it wasn't the first time favoritism was, was found in this family. Um, you can trace this favoritism in the family line way back through the family. You know, Joseph is Jacob's favorite son, the firstborn of Jacob's uh, wife, Rachel, in, in, their old, in his old age. Um, Jacob himself was a favorite of his mother, while his brother Esau was a favorite of his father, Isaac. Uh, there's a lot of favoritism in this family line. It's clear from the beginning of the story that Joseph had known nothing but the reality of being the favored son from the beginning of his life. And it's almost comical to see how oblivious he is as he speaks with his family about this fact of who he is. I've never, I've never looked at, uh, and maybe you see it differently, I've never read into this story that Joseph was a brat of any kind. I think that he was really, I think that he just really experienced being, the fav being favored, and he just lived out of that, it seems like. Um, but he did tattletale on his brother 
on his brothers, guys. He did. Whether it was for good reasons or because he was oblivious. Um, Joseph is shepherding with his brothers, and he, he goes back to dad and brings a bad report about his brothers to his father. So what do you think? Did the brothers, did the brothers appreciate Joseph doing that? Kids? No. So next, to, to kind of quell all of this uh, tension in the family, Jacob makes Joseph a very expensive and ornate robe for him to wear. Something that none of the other brothers got. This is something I really want you to catch. In the time in which Joseph lived, like the type of fabric, the type of ornamentation, the colors, the length of a robe designated authority. That was what this meant. So Jacob is saying through this gift, little brother Joseph has authority over his brothers. It's visible in the coat, and it's apparent through how Joseph interacts with his brothers and his father. You, the little brother, have authority over your brothers. How many of you kids would like it if your youngest sibling had authority over you? No, they don't like this either. So what happens next, as I said, seems to be a product of youthfulness uh, and cluelessness on Joseph's part. But at 17, Joseph has a prophetic dream from God. This is a real, legit dream from God. God speaks to people in dreams and visions still. And he spoke to Joseph in a dream. He has this prophetic dream where he sees he and his brother binding sheaves of grain together in a field. So far, so good. And then suddenly, Joseph's sheaves stands up before all the other sheaves, and the brother's sheaves bow down to Joseph. So does Joseph keep this dream to himself, is the question. And the answer is no. He tells his brothers, who are furious. So Joseph, you know, learned his lesson. Don't share dreams like this with your family. No, Joseph, don't do it. But he has a second dream that not even his father Jacob can stomach. Okay? So Jacob has a lot of tolerance for, for Joseph. But Jacob doesn't like this dream either. Because in this dream, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowed down to him. So the sun and the moon being mom and dad, and then the 11 stars being the, the brothers. Uh, Jacob, Jacob is not happy about that. He actually rebukes Joseph because um, he's, he's mad at him. Now, like I said, I don't know what Joseph's intentions were. But Jacob wasn't happy. The text simply says, after all this, his brothers hated him. Hated him. He was a marked man. Joseph's brothers then make a plan. Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers again while they are working in the fields. They see him coming from a long way off. And they decide, they talk among themselves, let's kill Joseph and throw his body into an empty hole in the ground called a cistern. The plan is that they will take Joseph's fancy coat, his ornate coat, shred it up, dip it in the blood of goats, present it to their father Jacob, and suggest that he was eaten by wild animals. At this, Joseph's brother Reuben steps in to try to save Joseph's life, suggesting that they simply, they don't kill him, but just leave him in the cistern. And Reuben had this plan, later I'll come get him and bring him back to my father. So uh, Reuben planned to rescue Joseph, but when Joseph comes out, all of his brothers, minus Reuben, who wasn't around at the time, attack him, rip his road off, shred and bloody it, throw him in the cistern, and then while they're enjoying their lunch break, they see a caravan of merchants heading to Egypt, and the brothers, minus Reuben, pull Joseph out of the cistern and sell him for 20 shekels of silver to this merchant band that was heading to Egypt. 20 pieces of silver. Turns out that was the going price for a slave. So they sold their brother into slavery. 
I guess they thought this is better to make some money off this deal. The text says something very important in Genesis 39, 2-6, in the midst of all this. It says, The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Because he was, he was bought by Potiphar. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of the household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care, with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Now Joseph was favored. He was favored by God. And he believed it. Joseph was, a gift, was gifted as a leader, as an administrator. And he also had the favor of God on his side so that everything that his hands touched appeared to be blessed. To the point that Potiphar says, well, not everything I touch is blessed. I'll have Jacob touch everything except for the food I eat. Then everything will be blessed. And surely it was. It's God's presence that's making this happen. It reminds me of a future story about the Ark of the Covenant. When the Ark of the Covenant was in the camp, and, you know, there's a blessing with God's presence there, right? The text says Joseph was, on top of being beloved of God and his family, well-built and handsome as well. So after some time serving in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife tries to get Joseph to be her boyfriend on the side. Her secret boyfriend. And uh, you know, she, she, she came at him pretty, pretty strong, like, I want you to be my boyfriend. I love having the kids in service. I think I already blew it. Um, <laughs> time after time, she came up to him trying to tempt him, but he refused her every time says in verse 8, With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except for you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Genesis 39 Joseph, as we can see from this, this passage, he understood authority and the limits of authority in his life. He respected and submitted to his master Potiphar, and he knew that overstepping the authority of his master by taking his wife would be a grave sin against God. Eventually, Potiphar's wife became so angry and frustrated over Joseph, uh, rejecting her, that she grabbed the cloak that Joseph was wearing ripped it off of him as he was fleeing her presence. So once again, as with his ornate coat taken by his brothers in order to deceive Jacob, Joseph's outer garment was seized by Potiphar's wife and kept as, as evidence, as deceptive evidence to Potiphar that Joseph had attempted to assault her. This is substantial in my mind because the outer garment that symbolized Joseph's authority kept being taken away and used to spread lies about him to others. But through it all, Joseph trusted in God, who is the only one that really gives authority. And Joseph continued to honor God wherever he ended up. Interesting. 
lost two coats out of the deal. Joseph seemed to always remember, even in the midst of things like this, God has something he's doing, a mysterious plan that's unfolding, an upper story. So how can I, in my lower story, forsake and disrespect God and the people God's placed over me in authority? I can't. I can't, because there's an upper story. There's someone that's watching. There's, this makes a difference. So over these false charges, Joseph gets imprisoned in the king's jail. And while in prison, Joseph meets Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker. Each of them has a dream as well that they could not understand, which troubled them. When Joseph saw their downcast faces, he asked them what was wrong. When he learned that it was due to bad and troubling dreams they were having, Joseph offered to interpret them, saying, Do not interpretations belong to God? And shared about future events in their lives. And both of those dreams came true. For the cupbearer, he was restored to being the cupbearer to the king. For the baker, he was put to death by the guards. Um, I think it's important to see Joseph's phrasing here. He says, the, the interpretation doesn't belong to me, but I'll do this for you. I just think that what a humble attitude. He realized his gifts and talents were in God's hands, and he, he, he talked about that a lot. So in the story, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a sad, it's, it's actually a story that makes me laugh a little bit, even though it's dark, because the cupbearer gets a favorable interpretation, and then the baker's like, oh, no, my, my turn. <laughs> my turn, give me a prophetic word. And he's like, well, not for you, buddy, sorry. Anyway, after two years in prison, Pharaoh had a dream that deeply troubled him as well. And all of a sudden, the cupbearer remembers Joseph. He had forgotten about Joseph. But he remembered about Joseph. And Joseph was brought before Pharaoh. And after hearing the dreams, he shares the interpretation that both dreams are one and the same. They both have the same meaning. There will be seven years of good crops, seven years of severe famines in the land. And he advised Pharaoh. This is where I think he has a, a, a tremendous leadership and, um, you know, a, a tremendous gift to, admit, to administer, to be an administrator. He advises Pharaoh that they should take the next seven years of plentiful crops and store them away in Egypt so that on the seven bad years there would be food for Egypt. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh, and so Pharaoh decided not only to heed Joseph's plan, but to make Joseph the second in command to himself in Egypt. So Joseph was now the administrator of Egypt. Uh, he was the second in command to Pharaoh. And, you know, I think Pharaoh has a similar feeling to Potiphar. You know, he's like, you know, everything this boy touches and everything that he says, why would I not want to trust him with this? If I want to be successful, Joseph's got to be in the picture. So Joseph's now the administrator of Egypt. Sold as a slave to, in Egypt. Uh, going, to j going to jail with a false accusation being pulled out of jail through dream interpretation and then made second in command to Pharaoh. Quite an amazing arc of story. Remember when, J Joseph's, uh, when Joseph's coat, which symbolized his authority, was stripped from him, first by his jealous brothers and then by Potiphar's wife? Now it says in Genesis 41, 42, then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Now it was God who gave Joseph, his gifts, his talents, his authority. And though Joseph's enemies had tried to strip him of it, 
through taking multiple coats. God was faithful and would not allow that to be taken from him, his authority. The gifts and the call of God were irrevocable in Joseph's life. So Joseph is now 30 years old. It had been 17 years of just good things and bad things happening to Joseph. He was faithful. Everything came out the same way that Joseph said it would. There were seven years of abundance and seven years of severe famine. And with the food that Joseph stored, they were able to store a lot more, I think, than they thought in the beginning. When God said it was going to be prosperous, he meant it. It may have been a supernatural crop. With the amount of food that Joseph stored in Egypt, people from all over the region, not just Egypt, but from all their whole region, came and bought food from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh became extremely wealthy. God was blessing Pharaoh through Joseph's presence in his administration. This brings the story all the way to its completion. Father Jacob, who's experiencing the, the, the famine with his sons, is now an older man. He sends his ten sons, minus his new favorite son, Benjamin, to Egypt in order to get some food so they will not starve. Now, Jacob withheld sending ben Benjamin because he was afraid harm might come to him like it did to Joseph. So now, Jacob's sons are going before Joseph and bowing to the floor, asking him to buy food. Does that sound familiar? It's a dream that Joseph had. And Joseph immediately recognizes his brothers, but they do not recognize him. Joseph pretends to be a stranger and accuses his brothers of being spies in the land. He jails his brother Simeon as an incentive for the remaining uh, brothers to go get back to get Benjamin to prove that their story was true. When the nine brothers returned to Jacob with the food, but without Simeon, Jacob decided it was all too risky to endanger his youngest child. And so, Simeon gets to stay in jail for a while. But the famine was so severe that eventually Jacob had to send Benjamin back or they were all going to die of starvation. So when the brothers stand before Joseph again, he, he, he starts being friendly. He invites them to a dinner which makes them all extremely nervous. If you read the Old Testament or you, know, or you know world history, sometimes bad things happen at dinners of kings and rulers. Like there might be a head count of 100 people, but only 98 head counts are left after the thing's over. After dinner, that they were surely nervous all the way through, Joseph sends his brothers home with lots of food. Also the silver they used to pay for it in their sacks, and also his silver cup, which was his special kingly cup that he used for his work. <clears throat> and they put the cup in Benjamin's sack. So Pharaoh's people, they run to the brothers, they find them, intercept them. They say, well, whoever has this cup, they'll be put to death, okay? And um, Pharaoh says, actually, you know, whoever has the cup can be my slave, and then the rest of you can go free. Um, or, or Joseph says that. But they all swear they don't have the cup. But the cup is found in Benjamin's sack. And so the brothers are at peak fear. And they're being hauled off to Joseph. And they remark in the story, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when, we pleaded, when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Wow, what great discernment they had. But that's, God didn't have revenge in mind. That's how movies go, right? Finally, after the brothers stand before Joseph yet again, as they bow before Joseph yet again, 
Joseph cannot control himself any longer. He says who he is. It says in Genesis 45, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now not, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. So much like we saw in the story with Jacob and Esau last week, you know, Jacob fearing being attacked by Esau for all the bad things that Jacob had done to him, Joseph's brothers fully believed that Joseph was in this position of power, could now finally punish them the way that they deserved. In fact, I think that they, they, they felt they deserved it too. But he didn't. You know, far from it. Joseph was on a completely different wavelength than them, a different planet in the way he thought about things. Joseph really believed that God was in charge of all of this. And he believed that God was faithful to keep his promises. Joseph has accepted this truth that we see later in the scriptures from, from Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Now, Joseph did not become, uh, did not give up or become bitter when he was mistreated, when he was beaten, when he was left for dead, when he was sold into slavery, when he was falsely accused and imprisoned. No matter who tried to strip him of the symbols of his authority that God had given him by shredding his coat or ripping his outer garment off, he never once had the idea that it was all over. But he believed that God was behind it and had a good purpose in all of it. And in the end, Joseph is completely vindicated by God himself. And he gives mercy to his brothers and grace with abundance, despite all they had done to him. You know, mercy is not punishing you the way you deserve. Grace is heaping upon you the riches. And he gave his brothers a new home, all the food they could eat, and jobs. I mean, he was incredibly gracious with them. He believed everything came from God. And so even if he was angry or it went through difficult periods between parts of the story, when he was sitting in prison, when he was uh, sitting before Pharaoh, he never, he did not dwell on revenge and hurt, but he looked at everything as there's, there's an upper story happening. And I can see what it was. It was to save all these people through a great salvation. If, if I hadn't been sold into slavery, this wouldn't have happened. And we'd all be dead. And there would be no more Israel, no more God's people, because we'd all be dead. But God has made a great salvation. Joseph is a guy, is, is, is something we call a foreshadowing person in the Bible. A type of Christ, it's called. A picture of who God is. Jesus, like Joseph, carried God's authority. Fully. He carried all of God's authority. Jesus was misunderstood. He was mistreated. He was betrayed. And he was beaten. And his outer garment was removed. And he gave up his life on the cross, on the sinner's cross. That was Jesus' lower story. But Jesus knew the upper story. Uh, in fact, he gave his life with a conviction that God was bringing a great salvation through his blood. Not just available to people in one region or another, like, like in Joseph's salvation, but to anyone in the world who needs their sins forgiven to be in a relationship with God. 
And like Joseph, after a few days, God showed the world that Jesus was not stripped of his authority when they stripped him and nailed him to the cross, but that he was now seated at the right hand of God comfortably with angels and all earthly authorities and powers in submission to him. That's what God was doing in the big picture. First Peter 3.22, we started our service with this, or 18. For God also suffered, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience before God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So the question I have for you this morning is, when you look at your life, when you look at your lower story that you're living day in and day out, do you believe, Christian, that God is really using all things for your good because you love him and are called according to his purposes? Imperfect Joseph and his perfect descendant Jesus always had God's mysterious larger purposes in mind. And as a result, when the time came for revenge, Joseph forgives his brothers instead of killing them, and Jesus forgives those who are nailing him to the cross while they're in the process of doing that instead of condemning them. If you truly believe, if you truly will believe that God is, is in, is behind the details of your life, your lower story, if you believe what Romans 8.28 says, then you will encounter both good and bad as elements of life that God will turn and use for your good and for the good of many other people. And the, the amazing thing is, when we lay ourselves down like that, when we humble ourselves and acknowledge we just don't have all the answers, but God is working out his purposes, we can leave any kind of vindication, any kind of, yeah, you're right, attaboy, to God, um, just, like, just like Joseph did, just like Jesus did. Um, we, can, we can believe that God's purposes are being fulfilled and that we don't need to defend ourselves. We don't need to defend ourselves. God will defend us. God will protect us and empower us. So as we are closing our time today, I'm going to invite the worship team up to close us in a song. I know we're going a little bit late, but I really want to worship God today. I'm just asking you to, to, to reflect on your lower story, what you've been through, and think about this idea that God is up to something bigger than you know. And God wants to cooperate with you that all the details of your life would be, become a part of his plan and his kingdom's fulfillment. God bless you. You are dismissed to go and be the church of Jesus Christ.